0: Hello everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health Webcast: The New Normal, Restarting After COVID-19, sponsored by DuPont Sustainable Solutions. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine, and I'll moderate today's presentation. First, we'd like to thank you all for joining us. On behalf of the National Safety Council's employees, are currently working away from the office. We hope that you, your loved ones, and all the people in your lives are remaining safe and healthy wherever they are. We'll start this presentation in a couple minutes, but first there are some housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speakers. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box on the left-hand side of your screen and click the button for submit question. So please feel free to ask your question at any time during this presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but we might not get to every question. The good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's speakers. If you have any technical issues during this webcast, please refer to our list of helpful tips on the right-hand portion of your screen. And for basic troubleshooting information, click the help button located on the bottom. This webcast will be archived so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please go to safetyinhealthmagazine.com slash events. Uh, Finally, our sponsor, DuPont Sustainable Solutions, is providing links to additional information, which you can find on the resources widget on your screen. And with that, let's introduce our speakers. Uh, With us today are Nicholas Baller, the Global Director of Operational Risk Management at DuPont Sustainable Solutions. And Nicholas has more than 35 years of experience helping clients identify, prioritize, and reduce risk. Ron Signorino has more than 49 years of experience in the transportation industry and is the president and founder of the Blue Oceana Company and former head of the OSHA Office for Maritime Standards. Dr. John D'Angelo is the senior vice president and Executive Director of Emergency Medicine Services for Norwell Health in New York. Norwell has treated more COVID patients, COVID-19 patients than any other health system in the nation and recently discharged their 10,000 COVID-19 patients. And leading the panel discussion today will be Craig Sexton, who's enjoyed a 30-year career in the film, TV, and entertainment industry as an award-winning producer, director, and writer. Craig currently serves as a global creative director for DuPont Sustainable Solutions. Again, we'd like to thank you all for tuning into this presentation. Craig, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away.
1: Thank you, Ron. It's good to be back with you again. How are you doing
0: today? I'm doing great. I'm I'm really looking forward to this presentation.
1: Yeah, we have some amazing people on the panel today. So uh, I'd like to start with uh, the latest from the WHO and the CDC as of June 3rd, 2020. At 1 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time, there have been more than 6.2 million cases of the coronavirus worldwide, and there are over 379,000 deaths. 216 countries, areas, or territories are currently affected by the virus. So COVID-19 has imposed itself on companies all over the world, and they very well may become the new normal, um, but I see possibly it becoming the permanent normal on how we operate moving forward on a daily basis. Now, in the United States, we are beginning to slowly reopen and we are lifting restrictions uh, around quarantines so companies that are gonna be reopening during this restart process, well, they're gonna to have to expand their safety protocols and they're gonna to have to rapidly communicate with their organizations about how to protect their facilities and protect their people. But what in the world do we do and where do we start? I mean, that really is the big question. So. Let's bring in some of our panelists today. I want to start with Nicholas Barr. He's our global leader of operational risk management here at DuPont, and Nick, you've been working with organizations around the globe to help them start back up their operations. And uh, I'd like to ask you kind of the big, broad question as we get started here today. Uh, And I'm gonna come back to you, Nick, and we can dive deeper into this, but you know, let's just start with a big question. What does it take to successfully restart operations?
2: Uh, Thanks, Greg. I I think that's an important question. Remember, a lot of companies are are ramping up. So some are restarting and some are are bringing up production. But what what we've seen worldwide is there's a five times more likelihood that um, a safety problem or incident will occur during restart. So what's really critical is that everyone focuses first on their people, protecting them. And clearly the second thing is focusing on understanding where their customers are in this pandemic process. Are they still buying the same way? Are they still needing their services in the same way? So I think looking at those two factors together are gonna be the key issue for us uh, moving forward successfully.
1: Well, thanks, uh, Nick. I appreciate that. Uh, What about you, Ron? What does it take to successfully restart
3: uh, your operations? Well, Craig, I'm uh, at somewhat of a deficit in terms of providing practical wisdom in uh, relation to restarting operations. My industry, of course, is the marine cargo handling industry. And in all ports from Maine to Texas, we've never stopped operating. We've been part of the critical infrastructure that has to continue. From a professional standpoint, however, uh, I believe it takes an insightful, comprehensive, and flexible plan, continuous and effective communication of that plan, and a conscientious enforcement of the plan's contents.
1: Wow, that's well said, Ron. Thanks so much. And uh, Dr. D'Angelo, I'd love to hear from you here. Uh, What do you think it takes to successfully restart operations?
4: I think, um, you know, also being in an industry that's been, you know, active throughout this crisis, um, one of our lessons learned, which I think should be first and foremost when you're restarting any business is what uh, was alluded to earlier, and that is how do you, uh, how do you Uh, provide for the safety of your employees has to be your highest priority, Um, and how you reassure your employees that you have their safety in mind and that's your top priority uh, will go a long way. So I I think it's about creating a safe environment, having the right protocols in place, uh, the right equipment when needed, and uh, not thinking about business the way you've always done business. It's a new world. We have to think about how we do things differently.
1: Well, that's a great answer. I mean, that's really what our kind of topic is about, right? There is a new normal, but this new normal, Dr. D'Angelo,
4: could very well
1: become our permanent normal, right?
4: Absolutely. I think um, uh, in in the healthcare industry, absolutely. And I'm sure in pretty much any industry, we have to think about uh, what the future landscape looks like, um, what the uh, customer expectations are, and I think this also fast tracked us, uh, at least in the healthcare industry, into leveraging technology and um, thinking about uh, how we interact with our patients, our customers, and our employees differently, and we leverage um, virtual uh, as well as other means of, of those interactions. So yeah, it's, it's really going to be a new, uh, a new normal going forward. It is. It is indeed. Hey, so, um, Nick, I said
1: that we were going to take a little bit of a deeper dive. So I'm coming back to you, buddy. Um, Let's talk about these seven key elements. Now, I know that you've been working on the seven key elements uh, to a successful restart. Um, Now, for those of you that are note takers, and I am, so I'm going to get my paper out. I'd like you to walk us through uh, these seven steps to a successful Uh restart
2: sure and and i think that what we'll hear as i talk and as we move in the conversation ron and dr d'angelo will echo a lot of these um you know ron had mentioned they never shut down so this is really looking at those who are ramping up ramping up production from maybe 20 percent to 80 to 100 as well as those who are starting from from scratch so the first is the employee well-being obviously it's really assessing their current perception you know, their current readiness to return to work. We're hearing a lot of people are worried about that, making sure the necessary tools and, you know, establishing a work environment that is supportive and caring. And clearly, PPE and the social distancing are, are key cornerstones of that. We know that's what prevents the spread or at least uh, um, diminishes the spread. Uh, number two is design an agile governance system. What we've seen with companies that are successfully ramping up again and restarting is that they've they've assigned an executive recovery committee. So key executives of these companies are really looking at identifying um, business critical processes, pro- prioritizing them for restart assessing the situation, developing credible scenarios, and then really making sure those resources are there, manpower wise, financial, and putting in performance metrics, making sure that we're actually advancing, getting ready for sort of that big launch. The third is conduct a risk assessment and and the scenario planning. And what that means is is really postulating what could go wrong. You know, as I, I ramp up, as I start again, Um, What are the failure modes? And and really try to understand and model those scenarios and put in preventative systems, put in mitigation actions, and, you know, put your contingency plans together before you turn the key. And it also means establishing and monitoring indicators and, and really making sure you're constantly updating with new data as we go along. What we're hearing you know, constantly in the news is, this is a dynamic process, that curve is up and down and we see that all over the world. And I think a lot of um, companies that have struggled and actually had accidents didn't look at their risks. The fourth is ensuring adequate resourcing. It's really making sure you've got your minimum resource requirements to run safely and making sure they have the right competencies. You know, again, those people need to be prepared. If you've been shut down, if you've been, you know, in a diminished state, a lot of skills are very, very rusty. That's why airlines continue to have pilots flying and, and practicing so they don't lose those skills. And for you leaders on the phone, walk the line, check for the readiness, you know, really look at deficiencies, fix them, and, you know, look at that assessment again. The fifth is is really determining the supply chain reliability, and that what that means is understanding where your customer is. You know, what is his demand? Is he still buying at the same rate? Has your customer gone to a, a, a another competitor? Making sure of the availability of critical materials and supplies are in in, in place, and really assessing the supply chain readiness and ensuring that it can arrive at you. What we're seeing, especially these long supply chains from the other side of the world, is transport it can be a huge, huge issue. So the sixth is assessing your operational readiness. So again, identifying my hazards, understanding those risks, engaging the operating personnel, really making sure you get their input. So you're not doing this you know, in an ivory tower, determine the critical controls, you know, assess the integrity, confirm that you've got the capacity in place and startup procedures, pre-check a list a startup is really, really important. And then you know, constantly reviewing. And the last is communications, right? Ensuring prompt and open communications. Externally, that means manage customer expectations. Don't overcommit. Communicate realistically. You know what that restart plan looks like people understand we're all in the same situation we understand this is a unique uh problem track progress and make sure you're following through internally it's again you know working with all your employees making sure those work protocols those checklists are in place communicating often over and over and again any concerns that arise quickly respond to them and use your your um the guidelines that you have and, and, and i think um i um, certainly dr d'angelo um has a lot on this and ron as well as proactive health screening tracking and on-site testing and, and those sort of round out the seven key um, actions we think are important greg
1: wow that's a lot of information but you know what i love about <laughs> that nick is uh the way that you've been able to bring that down into seven key elements, but really they are more of like a checklist for any organization. Now, look, I'm taking notes. Let me make sure if I got this right. This is what I took down, right? Number one is to ensure the well-being of employees, right? You want to also, number two is design an agile governance system, and then you want to conduct risk assessment and do scenario planning. And number four was to ensure some adequate resourcing. And five, uh, take a look at your supply chain sustainability. And six was operational readiness. And seven and not least is prompt and open communications. How did I do?
2: Absolutely. 100%.
1: Perfect. 100%. Fantastic. So 100%. Thank That's you. Good. Nick. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate that. I, I was doing my best taking notes there with you. But uh, of course, as we're restarting, we all need to comply with OSHA and CDC guidelines. But in some cases, there may be a need to go past that with uh, additional protections. Ron, uh, let me get your input here. Now, I know you've been on the docks uh, with the, the essential workforce like you were talking about earlier. Uh, and I also know that you have a very low infection rate. So how have you been able to navigate through the OSHA guidelines to keep your workers safe? Did you hear what I did there, Ron? You know, ports, ocean, navigate, how have you been able to navigate through the OSHA guidelines?
3: You're so good. (laughs) (laughs) From my perspective, Craig, the uh, relevant OSHA standards are most often very useful, uh, particularly the ones that I wrote, he says, tongue in cheek. Uh, Some may argue that they don't go far enough, and that an emergency temporary standard for COVID-19 should be developed. uh, I would probably disagree with that point of view. The CDC guidelines um, have been marginally less useful in as much as that they've sometimes been somewhat contradictory. Moreover, the uh, the CDC interim guidance, specifically addressing uh, employees that comprise the essential workforce, my gals and and guys, were, in my view, far too permissive. Um, Yesterday's eye-opening article in The New York Times provided a rather grim view uh, of, among other things, how politics have played a role uh, not so subtly in the formulation of these CDC guidelines. My own experience in working to protect personnel is mixed. Um, The majority of marine cargo handling workers are grateful for the attention to detail that we've been able to provide them. Um, some, however, uh, challenge the mandate, for instance, to wear respiratory protection uh, based on their perceived constitutional rights. Uh, in some, though, it's a mixed bag. Uh, notwithstanding, our, I view our results um, in a very, very positive light. I think that uh, our industry in particular has done a very good job. And the statistics uh, bear that out.
1: Wow, that's really fantastic! Thanks uh, for your insight, there, Ron. So, look, hey, I want to ask a question that I know everybody out there wants me to ask, and um, and I can't wait to uh, to ask you about this management and labor. That's uh, that's always a big topic uh, down at the ports. So <laughs> let's just jump. Uh, let's just jump right into it. Management and labor. How is that happening? What is happening? How are you guys sorting this out together? I'd love to get the inside scoop on how you guys are dealing with COVID-19 together.
3: You know, it's a, it's a very good question, Craig. Um, my industry, management and labor has come together in a way that in my 50 years of experience in this industry, I've never witnessed before. Um, as essentially a neutral third party entity engaged by both management and and labor interests my experience is that they have joined hands and worked hard in order to safeguard the health of our management and labor employees Um, my sense is that that effort has transcended all aspects of protective measures from uh, pre-shift temporal temperature scans to rigorous disinfection policies and procedures The acquisition and distribution of PPE, the contact and trace exercises that are so necessary to contain potential pockets of infection, and many, many more issues. In sum, this industry has put aside the usual acrimony that often accompanies the labor management process um, and has worked diligently for the benefit of its 65,000-plus employees. That's my sense.
1: Wow. So, I mean, can we just say that there is a silver lining to this cloud? I mean, that has to be, that clearly has to be one.
3: I'm hoping to let the good times roll.
1: <laughs> well, there you go. Hey, uh, Ron, I've got a couple more quick questions for you. Can you tell me about the HEROES Act?
3: Oh, the HEROES Act. Well, hopefully I can tell you precious little about the HEROES Act. <laughs> because it's a, it's a long, long, long act. The uh, HEROES Act, which is uh, House uh, Representatives Bill 6800, uh, was passed through the U.S. House on the evening of 15 May, and it's now sitting in the uh, general calendar of the U.S. Senate, where it has its second reading um, earlier this week, I think on Monday. It's a huge bill, uh, over 1,800 pages, which deals with appropriating um, $3 trillion for various initiatives that range from hazardous duty pay for essential workers to forgiving student loan debt and many other things in between. For my industry, um, the most notable provisions are the hazardous duty pay measures, which amount to a $13 an hour sum per worker for each hour worked from mid-March to the end of the COVID-19 crisis as declared, and amendments to the federal longshore and Harbor Workers' Compensation Act, which is the exclusive form of workers' compensation available to workers in our industry. Um, In sum, the amendments to that law would provide a presumption that any COVID-19 claim filed under that act would be work-related, and also that a special fund would compensate workers who file a bona fide claim also that an insurer would be prohibited from using any COVID-19 claim as rationale for raising an insured employer's premium, and that the special funds resources would be available, and this is pretty interesting, would be available only if the employer of the claimant had been in compliance with CDC guidelines and OSHA regulations. So it's drawing a bar there. If you can't pass that bar and that bar is being compliance with CDC and OSHA, you're basically out of luck in receiving uh, any recompense for the compensation payments you pay as an employer. Right, well,
1: I mean, you know, I, 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 I'm gonna look for the silver lining in this, uh, in the HEROES Act as well, that um, we are making steps to Uh, to compensate people, especially your people, who have never left the port since day one of the virus outbreak, uh, have the ability to be compensated in some form of hazardous duty pay. I mean, that's great news, right?
3: Sure, sure. And that particular provision for hazardous duty pay would extend to not only my folks working on the waterfront, but all essential employers, whether you're working in a hospital setting or anywhere that was critical. Sure, that's fantastic.
1: Uh, Let me take you down a slightly different road here just for a second, Ryan, since I've got you on a roll. Uh, From a legal standpoint, from just a legal standpoint, how can organizations protect themselves?
3: Another good question, Craig. Um, From a legal standpoint, uh, the more persuasive examples of insulating organizations, which would include both management and labor organizations, and their respective workers is documentation in actually putting together evidence. For example, um, every Friday, which means tomorrow, I receive a written report from each of our ports from Maine to Texas, which details the steps that have been taken, <laughs> pardon me, in order to um, to mitigate the risks associated with the potential COVID-19 exposures. Hello. of course during a live webinar i didn't foresee that yeah (laughs) that type of evidence craig can be persuasive in establishing affirmative efforts and defenses that would tend to foreclose upon potential serious harm to individuals Someone who's very, very um, onerous. <laughs> yes. So uh, that type of evidence would be persuasive in establishing prima facie evidence in any kind oh. of defense.
1: I gotcha. I gotcha. Hey, um, I know I said that was uh, your last uh, one last question, but I do have one more really quick question for you. I just happen to know uh, that this topic is really close to your heart and personal to you because you actually contracted COVID 19. how are you doing uh, how was it how'd you get through it
3: yeah yeah my wife was kind enough to bring that home to me and, and um uh, <laughs> i'm uh, i'm doing well apart from that noise in the background i'm doing yeah. real well
1: well good hey i'm glad you're safe and healthy and look um the ports aren't the only organizations who are boasting, um, low infection rates. Um, I happen to know, uh, Dr. D'Angelo, uh, who I would like to bring into the conversation now, uh, your organization, Northwell Health, who, um, was really at the, um, at the epicenter of the outbreak in New York. Uh, Dr. D'Angelo and Northwell Health, they operationalized, uh, the Javits Center. They also operationalized the Red Cross ship, the Comfort that ported in, uh, uh, in the ports at new york so um your organization uh, has had the lowest uh infection rates of any organization so can you just tell me a little bit about the steps that you took to keep your team and your people safe dr d'angelo
4: yeah i think um you know the numbers will will uh bear out over time as as you know this uh, uh continues but um We're very pleased with uh, how we uh, responded as an organization. Uh, We have a long-standing history of of emergency preparedness, incident command structure. Uh, We're very proud of that as being part of our DNA as a healthcare organization. Uh, We're a big operation. We have over 70,000 employees, 23 hospitals. Um, We see close to a million patients in our emergency departments every year. And um, we went into action in January when the first case hit New York, uh, hit the United States, I'm sorry. Um, and started our planning and uh, learned a lot along the way. And um, you know, this was, uh, as alluded to earlier, we went through all the steps uh, that were outlined um, and uh, had to constantly evolve as guidelines changed, CDC recommendations changed, knowledge became uh, more and more available with experience. And um, I think the the foundational elements of keeping our workforce safe was, uh, exactly the things you guys were talking about today is is ensuring we had the, the right PPE for our staff, we had the right protocols in place to quickly identify and cohort uh, people arriving at our doors a- appropriately, um, and that uh, despite evolving knowledge, uh, good uh, communication plans as policies change, protocols change, um, uh, and how we disseminate that and have that become the the you know uh, the work uh, process in a highly reliable way um, so uh, we're very proud of how we responded we've had over 13,000 inpatients as you alluded to we've had over 10,000 discharges so far uh, I personally we've had about 50,000 plus patients in our emergency departments and uh, it's been a it's been a sprint for the last two or three months uh, and we're on the the better side of it but we're preparing preparing for a resurgence. And uh, and and recovery and that new landscape that we spoke about earlier. Mm-hmm.
1: Good gracious. I mean, uh, look, I just want to thank you on behalf of everybody for you guys being out there on the front line and what an amazing job that you've done and taking those steps to do it. But let me ask you this. What are some practical things that um, for some of our people listening um, that they can implement when they're looking to restart uh, their operations uh, that will actually protect their people. And I think, uh, you know, uh, you shared with me at one time, your mask mandate. So yeah. um, can you just talk to um, our listeners out there? Because I know that they are sincerely interested in what they, what they can do, you know, absolutely. what are some yeah. practical solutions for them? Yeah,
4: absolutely. I think, it, it, I think um, it. it's, the foundation of, of of safety is is uh, is exactly that. Is as, as we know the virus spreads by droplets, uh, predominantly through respiratory droplets, and um, you know as was was Ron alluded to earlier, the CDC guidelines were were kind of all over the place, um, and uh, and initially the guidance was you know you wear an N95 if you're in close contact for a prolonged period of time with a known or suspected patient with COVID nineteen. Um, very early in this process, um, although we had concerns about supply chain like everyone else and a lot of the N95 uh, that supplied you know, this country came out of China and that supply chain got disrupted and, and you know, it was a scramble to make sure we would have enough for the long haul, uh, what we realized early on is the initial CDC guidelines were you know we were screening people for travel to the five countries of concern at that time. Um, and uh, if there was known contact, but eventually this was gonna be community spread. And and, um, uh, ultimately what wound up happening was um, we started to see atypical cases. And I remember one night being in one of our emergency departments and we thought we had our first case, but the gentleman didn't check any of the boxes that we were told to look out for. And now he's been in our ED for about two or three hours when we got to the point of realizing this may actually be COVID. And it was very early in March, two days after the first case in New York. And sure enough, he was. And the next day, even though he walked in looking like a normal person that wasn't that sick to being on a a ventilator in the ICU the next day, uh, we lost six staff that night to being furloughed due to exposure. So we instituted a mask mandate the very next day. And uh, that was that no one was coming in our emergency department without a mask on. So typically, we would screen patients. And if they had a cough or respiratory symptoms, we haven't put a mask on. But now everybody was wearing a mask. Visitors, patients, uh, and our staff, not just in the room. And it wasn't necessarily N95s. A regular procedural mask was all it would take. We um, got some ridic- we got some, uh, took some heat from other organizations in our area that that was irresponsible and uh, not consistent with the guidelines or evidence based. And as you can see on the screen there, uh, our mask mandate that I put in effect the day after I saw that patient on March 6th, March 7th, it went into effect. About a week later, we put it in effect in our entire, every hospital, every inpatient setting. And despite that gray curve on the screen, which was the the, the, the the curve of our COVID cases, our employee exposures, our furloughs, our sick outs went, went down dramatically. And it was that simple task of masking everybody that made a huge yeah, and, difference.
1: Yeah, I mean, Dr. D'Angelo, you just can't argue with the numbers here, right? I mean, masks
4: yeah. work. The mask work, and it's it it, it has to be just a a, a a part of our normal everyday procedure right now. Mask, hand hygiene, good respiratory etiquette, um, and then again, as talked about in the environment, how do you assess the the risk assessment of the type of work people are doing? What can be done remote? Leave it remote if possible, um, and whatever's you know interactive based or interaction based, uh, you know mask distancing, uh, how we use workstations, how we stagger shifts. Um, All of that is important to keep in mind to minimize that exposure.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you need any convincing, uh, it's hard to need more convincing than taking a a good look at that graft. I mean, mean, if that says anything, it tells us that masks actually work. So what about an employee? Um, Is there anything new that we need to know when it comes to protecting ourselves at work?
4: Yeah, I think... um, I think the mask and good hand hygiene has got to be the foundation. Um, there's some suggestion and in, 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 in the later CDC guidelines that just came out uh, about eye protection being important with an unmasked COVID-19 patient um, and lack of eye protection also is, is, uh, could be considered a high risk exposure. Uh, but the important thing out of that is the most important person to be masked is the person who's, who's infected. Um, And it's important to realize that people could transmit the infection long before they know they're infected. You know, they may not have symptoms yet. Um, And um, so the more important than even like my staff, it's important that they mask up, they have the eye protection, the gowns, the gloves, especially with certain types of procedures. And that's critical. But the risk of the exposure goes down dramatically with the patient, or in any work environment, the patient, the person, the customer who could potentially have an have the a subtle infection, and you don't know if they're masked. So, in addition to your employees being masked, I think the most important thing is you make sure all your customers are masked, and the people you're interacting with is. I wouldn't let anybody in my building who's not masked at this point, point. Um, and that's the yeah. an important thing for employees uh, yeah, to I mean, understand.
1: Yeah, I mean, a doctor, you know forgive me because, you know, clearly I'm not a doctor. And uh, so, I mean, it's very simple to me. When I hear you say that, it just sounds like we just need to pay attention to the basics, hand hygiene, wear a mask. And really the issue around wearing a mask is that we may be uh, asymptomatic and not know it. So you, it's not just the people that have symptoms and that have tested positive for COVID, but it's, for us walking around that may not know that we have it. I mean, that's what I'm hearing you say. Is that what
4: I'm hearing? That's correct. And people can have exposure and be shedding virus 24, 48 hours before they become symptomatic. So you just have to assume uh, that it's possible. Um, and, uh, and and until we, as a, you know, until the human race develops herd immunity down the line from, you know, our, our steady exposure over time, we just have to assume that you don't have immunity uh, or there's a right. vaccine a we of ourselves immunity but you don't have immunity and people could be shedding the virus and not know it and uh, protect yourself with that level of uh, of uh, you know of caution um, and that's really it and staying home if you're sick I mean I think our employees need to be encouraged that uh, you know there's no uh, penalty for calling out sick if you're sick we want you home uh, we want you recovering we don't want you exposing everybody else so I think you know that's you know, to your question about what you would, uh, how you would advise employees, those are the things I would uh, I would say are first and foremost. Excellent,
1: excellent. One last question for you though. Uh, sure. You just men- you mentioned earlier that you've uh, released your 10,000 COVID patient. I mean, you've been fighting this for more than three months now. So tell us what you're seeing in terms of testing and potential treatments. Sure. Um,
4: Testing has been an ongoing uh, challenge. Uh, From day one. Just to remind everybody, um, testing was only done through the CDC lab until early March. So the entire country, if you had a patient of interest, you had to get the Department of Health, the local Department of Health, to approve. And then they would collect the specimen and send it to Atlanta. And the turnaround times and the availability was very limited. So once uh, we were given the ability to start creating our own testing, it still took uh, several weeks to ramp up that capability, both in the commercial labs and the hospital labs. So we went through the steep first part of this crisis, really managing with very limited testing, at times 100 tests a day max, and I'm talking 23 hospitals, 2,000 emergency department patients a day, 1,500 patients a day in our urgent care centers, and we had 150 tests to work with. So uh, we had to be very selective about prioritization of testing early on, that's no longer the case um, as it's become more readily available, but uh, I do think um, uh, uh, testing and our ability to test uh, is, is critical um, for our operations. Uh, and uh, there are some industries, and in, in New York State now, nursing homes are required to have their employees tested twice a week is one of the new regulations. I think that may be a little bit overboard, but in, in the end, I think testing is going to become part of our uh, our. Uh, Our regular practice going forward antibody testing is readily available and i think that's going to add a lot of value over time uh we've tested our pretty much our entire workforce at this point we're happy talking to your point earlier about protecting our staff we're showing that the uh antibody rate which shows prior exposure or infection uh is no greater than the communities our employees live in so uh, we're not seeing a higher uh, conversion rate uh, indicating exposure and infection uh, than the general community in our staff who work working 12 hours a day, uh, in COVID positive units all day long. So, uh, um, but I think antibody testing will take a big role. Treatments, uh, you asked about treatments. Uh, there's a lot of clinical trials going on right now. This, like most viral, viral illnesses, there's not a lot of great treatments. It's not like an antibiotic for a bacterial infection. Right. So, um, Remdesivir is the one that's a little promising right now and you may be hearing about it's showing some value in mortality reduction uh, in the severely ill COVID patients. So that's promising. There's some auto, uh, there's some um, uh, uh, immune-based therapies that are showing some promise, but it's very early. Um, And a lot of the stuff that's getting sensationalized is based um, on, you know, small, experiences, but not real good clinical trials. So um, some of the stuff that people are hearing about early on proved to be more dangerous, like the malaria drugs that were being used. Uh, so we're still learning. There's good clinical trials happening. Uh, and there's some promise with some of these uh, some of these uh, medications.
1: Got it. Got it. Um, hey, well, thank you, Dr. D'Angelo. That was a lot of information. I really appreciate it. Those were some great answers and gave us some really good insights. And Nick, I want to bring you back in here because we're gonna have some time for some q a here in a moment where everybody listening is going to have a chance to ask our panelists some questions but you know at the beginning of the hour we were talking about uh navigating this new normal and i, I know it's a buzzword and it's being thrown around a lot these days but You know, the reality of it, it's the truth. Things are going to be different, and we're going to need to learn how to operate differently. Uh, You know, what are some things that we can do to ensure the resilience of our business? And specifically, Nick, you know, let me get your thoughts to begin with on how you're seeing organizations adapt and change. What are you seeing out there, Nick?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, um, Craig. It's one of the biggest changes I've seen companies are doing is technology. Right? So what I hear over and over is, I wish I had digitized more than I have now. And so I think, you know, we hear a lot about, and I'm sure uh, Dr. D'Angelo's, you know, very familiar with the telemedicine increasing, but we're seeing teleworking increasing. We're seeing a lot of different technologies that are being applied uh, in uh, very industrial environments. So you can have people remotely still working from home. Right. But I want to really emphasize, Craig, that, when we think of technology, it's not a silver bullet. So let's always, again, remember the human element. And so when I, when I look at these companies that apply technology but not consider the human, I, you know, there's a high failure rate. So it's critical, Craig, that they engage the team. So when they think of, okay, uh, I'm gonna work remotely, I'm gonna use different technologies, get your people to, to help you think through what that means. Before you buy, before you apply that technology, you know, prepare it and then pilot it out. What we see a lot of times is there's a pilot and then quick scale up, which leaves a lot of opportunity for, for failure. So you want to fail fast, fix it, and then scale up. And so I think critical to that success of applying that technology is managing the change, managing the culture because this is brand new for us, you know, we're, we're all sure learning even just as we're staying on the video con today, you know, yeah. technology is not always uh, what we want it to be. So it's important that we sort of prepare people to go through that cultural transformation. And I am sure we'll see a lot more remote working than we see now. I mean, clearly companies are talking about it all the time. So that will be part of the new resilience and this, this new, uh, new normal. Right. Yeah, I,
1: I mean, I gotta tell you, uh, Nick. I think that's a really interesting insight. I mean, you said something there. I mean, uh, I get the innovation. You know, we're in the innovation business, and I see companies, you know, innovating in amazing ways to keep their business open, thriving, or restarting. They're innovating, uh, but you just can't forget the human element part of that. But you know, yeah. I loved what you said earlier, which is something I've been really good at. Is I can fail really fast. You know, fail fast.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Put, right. There you go. <laughs> Absolutely. You got so, it. You got it. Ron, let me,
1: let, me, uh, let me pose that same question to you. What do you recommend uh, organizations uh, to modify their operations? How do you see organ? What would you recommend?
3: Well, Craig, uh, our industry is advised by a labor management and coastwide joint safety committee. It's comprised of three members from each side of the table and myself as the coordinator. By and large, I'd have to say that we like the experience that we've had thus far. So we're encouraging employers and employees through industry-wide communications that come in the form of occupational safety and health circulars and alerts that are published with great frequency to continue along the path we've been on. That being said, this summer will likely bring some challenges. Uh, Our work is typically conducted out of doors, of course, And the heat and humidity associated with that experience will certainly give rise to concerns about heat stress aggravated by the wearing of PPE. I expect that the Joint Safety Committee uh, will act in a reasonable way to ensure that both sides of that circumstance are accounted for responsibly.
1: Right, right, right. Well, that uh, that certainly makes sense. Um, so, uh, Dr. D'Angelo, I want to come back to you for one last question before we open it up to our listeners uh, and they can uh, start asking their questions. But, you know, I almost hate to ask you this question because I'm sure that you've heard it a million times, but here we're going to go for a million and one. How long is the COVID-19 outbreak going to last? How many are a
4: doctor? I've heard much worse questions before. Um, <laughs> okay. you know, I you know, I who knows? I if you look at uh, other pandemics in the past, they typically' have had a second and third wave, and I don't think there's any reason not to assume uh, that as we enter the fall, the upcoming flu season, um, that there there very well could be a resurgence of this uh, coupled with the, 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 you know, the social distancing, maybe breaking down or other, other variables or factors. Um, you know, we're personally p- planning for worst case scenario, which is about 15, 20 percent above our past peak, which was almost, uh, very difficult to bear, but that's what we we're planning for. And I would just assume we're going to have another wave and it's going to be, uh, I don't think I can, I would say we're out of the woods until after. This winter, when we're past the the flu season, this settles down and we see where we're at.
1: Yeah, I mean, am I am I wrong here, Dr. D'Angelo? I mean, we've already seen as some of the restrictions uh, uh, have been loosened and the quarantines lifted. I mean, just this week, we're seeing spikes around the country from just the lack of social distancing or wearing a mask.
4: Are, Are you seeing the same thing? Yeah, uh, we're we're still seeing a downward trend here, fortunately, but I think because this area got hit so hard, I don't see, I don't think we're seeing the breakdown as much yet in the social distancing. I think it's still first and foremost on right. the majority of people's mind around here, but um, but I it doesn't surprise me to see the spikes elsewhere, and um, you know I'm just hoping you know there's there's uh, theory that 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 the weather could have some impact and all, so I'm hoping that we get through this summer with a little bit of a breather as we prepare for the next wave, but we'll see. We'll see.
1: Okay. Hey, uh, gentlemen, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time today. Uh, We're gonna open it up uh, to some questions so I I can see our list is piling up fast. Uh, So, Alan, I'm gonna hand it over to you uh, and you can uh, start fielding some of our questions.
0: I'd also like to say thank you everyone for this fantastic and extremely insightful presentation. Uh, before we start the Q&A, I want to let everyone know about an evaluation survey. We're asking you to complete the uh, survey should be appearing on your screen now. Uh, your input is important because it will help us improve our future webcast. If you do not see the survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access the survey by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. Okay, now let's get to some questions. Um first question how do you handle it if an employee refuses to wear a mask while at work
1: Wow that that's a, that's a question that everybody can take uh look I'm just going to like let's just do a round robin here real quick uh Ron what 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 happens on the uh, dock if somebody refuses to wear a mask
3: They're asked to leave
1: There you go and uh um Nick, what about you? What about in your, your I, I, work?
2: Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, if your protocol is to wear a mask and that is what everyone has to do because you can't social distance, then you've got to stick to it. Otherwise, um, it's worthless. So I, I, I tend to agree with Ron. It's a send them home. Well, Ron, Ron, there's
4: no question
1: for Ron. He's sending them home. Dr. D'Angelo, I don't even think
4: I have to ask you this question, but (laughs) go ahead and weigh in. No, we we send them home. They can use a couple of days vacation and then think about it. And if not, then they go on unpaid leave and we can't use them. Uh, That's been our, our strategy. There you go. Okay, Alan, what's
0: next? what about the uh, effectiveness of homemade cloth masks that many people use? Should we move to a mask that has a specific filtration rate, or we should, should you still allow people to use kind of homemade cloth mask at this point?
1: I, I think that sounds like a question for you, Dr.
4: D'Angelo. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think I, I, would, I would recommend people wear, a, at the very least, like a procedural-type mask, a surgical-type mask, which has the uh you know some filtration uh, component to it uh the t-shirt type material can absorb um uh, droplets and uh, you know so i wouldn't say that would be ideal now um if your employees are masked and someone came through the door or a customer wearing something like that i think you're you're probably still okay but i wouldn't want my employees wearing a cloth mask personally got you
1: yeah so better than nothing right that's what we're saying if you're out Correct. in the environment at a retail store or you're going somewhere some sort of even homemade mask is better than nothing but prefer a Absolutely. surgical mask i think it's important to say at this time you know i've seen some people out there with n95 masks because they are the higher grade and more preferred but we are asking people worldwide not to uh, purchase that mask and save those for healthcare care workers and emergency responders correct is that the is that the good advice
4: I think that's good advice for two reasons. One is yes, the supply chains really important and we want to make sure they're available to the folks who really have that high risk exposure. Uh, b is uh, for for n ninety fives they come in various shapes and sizes and 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 we're required to fit test our employees to make sure they got the right model, the right size um, uh, and uh, you know if you're not wearing it right, it's not gonna it may not, it may not give you the protection you think you're getting um, and they're they're actually pretty uncomfortable. it's been challenging for us to have to work in those things for 12 hours a day um Uh, and uh you know so yeah i've seen some protection yeah
1: yeah i've seen some of the pictures of your uh staff after you know a 16 hour shift when they take them off uh you know the bruising and you know it's just uh it's tough so let's save them for our uh, our 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 first responders and our frontline workers and We'll use the standard uh, surgical mask or some sort of homemade cloth covering uh, for that. Uh, Alan, what's our next question?
0: Actually, this is a good lead into the next question. Um, It says, um, we are receiving frequent requests to move from required mask to face shields only in warm slash hot industrial settings. How effective is at all would moving from requiring mask to face shields be um, for comfort? I'm guessing a balance of comfort and uh, effectiveness.
1: Right. Thanks, Alan. So, Nick, do you want to take that one, and we'll let uh, Ron and uh, and uh, Dr. D'Angelo yeah. weigh in as well.
2: I, I I'll be curious to hear Ron and and Dr. D'Angelo from a um, scientific perspective. But I think one thing that's really important that we remember regarding face masks, there are some environments where a face mask becomes very problematic, in environments that have certain kind of. Uh, chemicals uh, you know in that work environment in the air and so the face mask absorbs it. So in those type of situations that face shield is going to be definitely a lot, a lot better. Now thank goodness in a lot of those situations also they tend to be heavy industrial um type work so you can social distance and control it a little bit better but um you know speaking just scientifically between the two I'll leave it to the other two guests to to talk, but I do think there are situations where that absorption um, becomes important. So it is uh, problematic. So it's important to understand your environment very well.
1: Right, right, right. So Dr. D'Angelo, so what I'm hearing there is uh, something that's actually new information to me uh, that uh, a mask can actually absorb some, like if you're working in a chemical plant or a plant that may use toxic chemicals or something like that, your mask could absorb that. So a
4: face shield. Uh, what do you say, doctor? Yeah, no, I think a face shield with a mask, uh, unless it's a closed system like a PAPR or you know some of these closed yeah. uh, systems, uh, is is the standard in our industry now. Uh, with close contact, with potential prolonged contact, aerosolizing procedures, um, we actually evolved to putting a, a surgical or procedural mask over our N95. For that reason, we can throw those out. Uh, after the encounters, because they could absorb material and then you touch the mask or, you know. Uh, sure. So, um, yeah, so, uh, so, yeah, a face shield is, I think, a standard now with close prolonged contact. Uh, and especially if it's with an unmasked person who likely has COVID, uh, you're doing a procedure on, on them or something that you need access to their airway. But, uh, but, but, yeah, so I think face shields have a role. Um, I don't think that means everybody out in the community needs to walk around with a face shield on, but if you're having that prolonged close contact and a high risk uh, exposure potential,
3: that's where it comes into play.
1: Right, Ron, what say you? Where do you weigh in on this one?
3: I'm not a fan of um, using face shields to provide respiratory protection. Uh, That being said, uh, I'm sure that they provide some measure of, uh, of protection, just not the level that I would want for my workers.
1: There you go, thank you. Uh, Alan, what do we got next?
0: So our next question, are temperature screenings effective and are there guidelines for how they should be completed?
1: Well, thank you. That's a great, that it really is a great question. So if you guys will, uh, I think this is one that I wanna hear all three of you handle. I'll start with you, Ron, and we'll end with a doctor. How about that? So Ron, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I think that they have their place. Uh, temperature scanning, uh, pre-shift scanning, uh, but I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't call them the end-all be-all of, uh, of indicators. They're a good tool, but one shouldn't rely on them entirely. There are uh, upwards of 40% of folks that uh, have this infection that are asymptomatic for a certain period of time, and uh, they could easily get by a temperature screening process. So while they're a good precaution, again, they're not the end-all be-all in terms of providing uh, a layer of protection.
1: Uh, that's great. Uh, thanks, Ron. Um, Nick, what are you
2: saying? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with Ron. I am concerned that we're over-relying on just temperature uh, protection. I, I see that in a lot of places. Um, as, a, as a sole screening method. Um, uh, the fact of the asymptomatic asymptom- issue is, I think, important. So you're having a large percentage that are getting through. I much prefer to have some sort of combined method. And um, it is going to be important that um, we not uh, get false security. And that's what I worry that the, the temperature screening does. So it needs to be combined with maybe some other tools as well.
1: Okay, doctor. Well, I've got you batting cleanup here. I've got two people that seem to be on the same side. Let me hear what you have to say.
4: Yeah, no, I agree 100%. It's a good tool. Potentially, if you get a positive screen, it's helpful. If you get a negative screen, it doesn't necessarily get you out of the woods, and you can't rely on it um, 100%. So it, it's a, it's another good piece of the puzzle if it fits in, in your operations, but it's it not something you should rely 100% on.
1: All right. Okay, well, thank you, doctor. I mean, we're three for three there, right? It has to be combined with something, uh, some other additional steps. Uh, it can't be relied on by itself. Alan, what's our next question?
0: It's kind of a good lead to the next question. So other than screening your employees daily with your own health department or using a third-party contractor or perhaps self-screening with an app or software, are there, are there any other ways that you can screen employees who are reporting um to a facility
1: Who wants to take that question, Ryan or Nick? I,
3: I haven't a good answer. I don't. I don't know where is there any. Right, yeah, I don't
1: Nick.
2: Think what about you, yeah. Nick? Yeah, I'll I'll, t- I'll take a different tact. Uh, it's not screening, but I think what we need to do, getting back to what I mentioned, risk assessments. Uh, We advocate really heavily, and I think um, what we heard Ron and Dr. D'Angelo do is is they did risk assessments of of their operating conditions, and they they determined, you know, what is the most likelihood that people will be exposed. That, to me, is really the most valuable. Is really getting my head around uh, what conditions people are walking in on, how do I protect them, how do I separate that. I think that's, and of course, the basics of, of the mask and the social distancing and the hand-washing, I, I think is really more important than, than, you know, any other way. More important right. than screening, you know, in, in reality.
4: Yep, yep. So, uh, Dr. D'Angelo? No, it's easy being clean up with these guys. I agree 100%.
2: Uh, <laughs> Good. I'll,
4: I'll, I'll put you in the leadoff spot next. Alan,
1: uh, looks like we've got time for at least one more question, right?
0: Yes, uh, it seems like, yeah, we have about time for one more question. um So I understand companies are using digital technologies to ensure employees' well being and take actions if one of them tests positives, um, such as isolating a team member who was in contact with that person. Uh, does DSS have a view of, on these technologies? Well, I'm going <laughs> to turn.
1: Yeah, I'm going to turn that one over to Nick. Uh, Nick, why don't you handle that question?
2: Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So, uh, just really fast, uh, we do. We look at technologies, you know, uh, constantly all over. The problem is there's a lot that's out there. Um, if you uh, go to our our website, we have a website um, safetytech.ai where we sort of screen technologies. Um, of, of uh, different applications and where they can be helpful. But again, I really want to emphasize, let's not overrate technology, right? It's the application of the technology that's the most important. So so please, as we think about using technology, not as a silver bullet, but um, in conjunction with how I manage you know, people in that environment. Right,
1: Ron, do you, I mean, uh, Dr. D'Angelo, do you have any input there?
4: No, I think it's, it's as was said. If you stick to the foundational elements to protect everyone. Uh, if unfortunately there's there is an exposure, you have a positive employee. What I'm hearing the question is, you have to you have to trace and, and understand the circumstances. If that positive, if that employee that turned COVID positive was wearing their mask when at work, and you know you've had the appropriate measures in place, the risk to their fellow employees is still low. So as long as you're communicating well, your other employees know they need to monitor their temperature, not come to work if they're sick. Um, I think you're, you'll be—you know—you'll be fine. Uh, it's more around the, the the processes we set up and protecting everybody, assuming they're going to be exposed, um, is is the the way to manage it. I don't think the technology is going to help you do that right 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 hey well look
1: gentlemen uh i i want to thank each and every one of you uh ron uh cigarino thank you for your insight uh working uh, uh, at the ports and dr d'angelo and uh, northwell health i can't thank you enough for being with us today and nick you're just always a uh, a fountain of information and i uh i can't tell you how much we appreciate you delivering the seven elements to us Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening today. And if you want to learn more about what you heard today, you can always go to DSSLearning.com. You can find us that way or the old-fashioned way. You can pick up the phone and call us at 1-800-828-8190. Thank you all. We'll see you soon. And, uh, Alan, you want to close us up?
0: Sure, thank you. Yeah, thank you to everyone as well from this end. Uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of our unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's speakers. And I want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. Uh, uh, we hope you take your uh, the time to share your feedback, and this ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Nicholas Barr, Dr. John D'Angelo, Ron Signorino, and Craig Sexton, our sponsor, DuPont DuPont Sustainable Solutions, and, of course, everyone who joined us today. Take care and be safe. Thank you.